Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, US Gamers official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Are you prepared for Christmas? No, but I'm never prepared for Christmas. In fact, I'm going to be working throughout the holidays this time around. There will be no relaxation for me. Yeah, I have a feeling it's not going to be too relaxing for myself either because we're going to be working very hard for Neo Acts of the Blood God. I like the name Neo Axe of the Blood God. I'm imagining the axe like glowing with neon piping and that kind of thing. It's kind of cool. It's like uh, you get a, a class upgrade. <laughs> Cyber Axe of the Blood God. It would be more punk than cyberpunk. That'd be for sure. <laughs> oh, man. That's not hard. Boom. Um, I see in the intro that Mitsuda responded to your quote tweet. Qua? <laughs> so... Uh, Mitsuda, of course, the composer who's done many, many RPG soundtracks, including Chrono Trigger, Chrono Cross, and countless others. Uh, apparently, he shared on Twitter, he has an owl, cat. He has a pet owl. And this owl is named Ramun, uh, after the pop, I suppose. And it dances. So it dances to music. And he showed us a movie of his, his owl dancing to music. So I quote tweeted this and said in caps that... Uh, Mitsuda has a fucking dancing owl. And he responded to just said, yeah. And I'm like, that is so cool. That is really cool. That is really cool to discourse about a dancing owl with like one of the best RPG composers of all time. That is some real Axe of the Blood God energy right there. It is. And I, I'm just not at all surprised he has a dancing owl. Not only that, peak Nadia energy to discourse with Mitsuda about a dancing owl. Yeah, I think so. I think that's on brand for me. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about what's going to be happening in this week's episode of Axe of the Blood God. Nadia, it is the end of 2020. I can't believe it either. This is the year that has lasted a lifetime. We will be talking about all of the best RPGs that came out this year. We will be talking about the RPG news. We will be hearing from you, the listeners, who will be telling us what their favorite RPGs were and everything else. Of course, if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor. Leave a review on the podcatcher of your choice. A positive review always brightens her day, and it makes it more likely for the blood god to be discovered and to rain RPGs down. Woo, Ooh, yes, like exactly. so many meteors and Sephiroth. <laughs> and also, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. I am on Twitch at twitch.tv slash catbaileytv. And Nadia is on Twitter at Nadia. Oxford. We don't have a newsletter anymore. R.I.P. Oh, R.I.P. newsletter. I'm very sorry, but thank you so much for supporting me. Uh, like I said in last week's episode, we'll try to find a way to revive that when it, when the time is right. Some sort of piece of writing. Because I enjoy writing about RPGs, and I think people enjoy writing my reading my writing about RPGs. So, hmm. so it's something we'll come back in the future. We just have to hash it out once everything else is in place. I enjoy reading your uh, writing about RPGs, Nadia. I do. I mean, you know what? It's funny. You guys are still working on US Gamer as of this recording. I think it's your last week or last partial week. And uh, I'm, I'm just a little bit lonely for writing, but I'll get back into it. I think that you should take a break because God knows I'm going to try and take a break, but I'm going to completely fail because I have like five podcasts to record <laughs> between now and January 4th. Yeah, we do have a lot of podcasting and editing to do and, and other stuff that uh, needs to be done. So I'm going to relax as much as possible, but uh, it's not going to be as much as it usually is. 
So here's the deal. I'm not going to talk much about what we are going to be doing, but I can say this, my dear Axe mm-hmm. the Blood God listeners. There will be a Patreon. It is going to be launching on January 4th, and you will be able to hear all of the information about that when it goes live. Suffice it to say, it's going to be awesome. I'm extremely excited about it. We've got new key art coming in. We have a lot of great guests. It's going to be a freaking kick-ass launch for the Acts of the Blood God Patreon. So please look forward to all of the details around that after we wrap out 2020. Uh, I think as I described it in my newsletter, the last newsletter, it's going to be more epic than, uh, I'm paraphrasing, more epic than 10 Dragons doing loop-de-loops to an 80s glam rock soundtrack. <laughs> so please look forward to there it. There you have it. And you said it in such a like deadpan way. I appreciate that. <laughs> I've taught you well, Nadia. I, I am letting the the, the listeners uh, insert their own excitement, their own visuals for this this epic event that is coming their way, and I'm just asking them to be prepared. I I imagine Principal Skinner saying, "I can assure you that it'll be more fun than ten dragons doing a loop to loop." <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, Nadia. Let's continue on to the RPG news. First item of business. Cyberpunk, more like cyber skunk, according to your notes. <laughs> yes, so Cyberpunk bad. 2077 has been delisted from the PlayStation Store in what is probably one of the most monumental video game F-ups that I have ever seen in a very long time, at least since the last monumental video game F-up. Even Fallout 76 wasn't bad enough to get freaking delisted. No, this is like both of us have been doing this for a very long time. And this is certainly like one of the pinnacles of, oh, my God, what is going on? Uh, Mm -hmm. Especially when you consider how big and hotly anticipated uh, cyberpunk was. And Mm -hmm. yes, you're right, because uh, take another example. No Man's Sky is one that gets held up as an example. Number one, that wasn't delisted. Number two, um, on the consoles anyway, I've heard different things about PC, but on consoles, the game worked fine. It was just under it just under promised and was kind of boring at first and also hello games was a, a company that had like 20 employees they had like me i think one mobile game to their name at the time when i looked at them and they're making all these promises i was just kind of like okay guys sure sure whatever and sure enough they couldn't really live up to it so i wasn't really putting a whole lot of expectations upon them and they really kind of went back and fixed their mistakes so i think they've built up a lot of the goodwill that they lost Fallout 76 is another example of Bethesda. Okay, to their credit, they have stuck to the game. They have tried to fix it, and um, it it certainly has its fans, I have to say. But even that still worked. It was not, like, fundamentally broken the way apparently Cyber 6... Cyber Cyber 6. I I appreciate that. Do you remember? That was a great freaking cartoon. Holy crap. Hmm. Cyberpunk. Uh, is apparently on the. I, I haven't played it myself, but I've seen the the videos, the, the vi- and uh, screenshots and and everything like that. And there's just no excuse for the game looking so poorly on a PlayStation Four. I of course I'm not expecting PC specs here. I'm just kind of looking at the the fact that on the street there's like the same NPC walking around in circles with no AI to their name and it's just really really disappointing on a system that still gave us things like Red Dead Redemption 2 like mm-hmm. it's it's mind boggling I think that it's become clear that CD Projekt really screwed up by even putting out a PS4 slash Xbox One version of Cyberpunk 2077 because 
there had to have been a point where they had to realize that it was a losing battle. It was just wasn't going to work and they were going to have to suck it up and make this a next gen exclusive. Yeah, um, that would not have been ideal at the time. I think, of course, there would have been a lot of backlash, but the backlash that is happening now feels so much worse than what would have happened if they had just said, hey, look, we can't do this on PlayStation 4. This is too much of a, a huge experience. PlayStation 4, the hardware is too old. We don't want to deliver something that's crappy and disappointing. And I think most importantly at the time, they could have said, we want to give you the best possible next-gen experience, and we don't want to crush our employees into oblivion. Because from the tittle-tattle, so much of the crunch came from uh, the team trying to make that awful PS4 version work. And it just it came to nothing. It was, it was for nothing. It's really, really a shame. I feel really bad for the developers on the ground. Yeah, what's worse, losing the short-term influx of cash from people who have a PS4. Yes, that is a very nice thing to have. But much worse is to put this game out and have it be so busted. And let's be honest, it is 100% unplayably busted mm -hmm. on the PlayStation 4. We we're talking sub-20 frame per second frame rates. We're talking about textures that are loading in ridiculously slowly and deformed monster people or something like that. Oh, I saw a GIF of that today. That was frightening as hell. And now so CD Projekt had a sterling reputation this generation. Witcher 3 elevated them so much. The, as close, as much as a studio could have a 100% approval rating, I felt like CD Projekt had it until this month. Yeah. And um, it just, it's like watching a balloon deflate and, and rocket around the room. It's, it's really something else. I should even say, not even just this month, this year. Like this mm. year has just been... A horrifically bad year for CD Projekt in so many ways. Yeah, and I think about it and it's like, what was it all worth? What was it worth to you? Who was making these decisions? Because, yes, your investors were happy that you got the game up before Christmas, but now you have a game that's so unplayable, you've made so much of your fan base angry in the long term, they won't trust you for a very long time. Your employees are, are worn out. It's just, what was it for? Now you have to give refunds, which... Aren't, isn't going fantastically well either. Your game has been outright delisted by the biggest platform out there. It was biggest console platform. Console yeah. platform, yeah. It's just, it was so so depressingly pointless. Not only that, I think that if they had released it as a next-gen exclusive, it would have given it a bit more cachet because then it's like, oh, Cyberpunk. It's like, it's the a glimpse of the next-gen yeah. and everything like that. Because honestly, playing it on PS5, it looks really good. Um, the frame rate is very strong, very steady. Um, the the graphics themselves are frequently really beautiful. And I mean, for God's sake, I'm playing Yakuza Like a Dragon on the Xbox Series X. And yeah, that's last gen, but it's still a next gen exclusive in its own way, you know? And Cyberpunk 2077 looks way better than Yakuza Like a Dragon does. So you can say, oh, wow, look at this really cool advanced experience. We certainly never could have had this work on the PS4 or Xbox One, and they would be right. But I think that that's kind of the direction they should have gone. And you can go, oh, well, there's hardly anybody has a PS5 or an Xbox One. My counterpoint to that would be, well, maybe if Cyberpunk has a really good launch and it has that next-gen allure, and as people buy a PS5 in 2021, they will go, hmm, I'm going to pick up Cyberpunk alongside my PS5. You can imagine Cyberpunk having a really strong attach rate to next-gen consoles. I think that would be uh, it, it's 
probably its greatest strength in the long term. It would have been extremely strong as a long term uh, purchase, kind of like how Nintendo has uh, Mario Kart Eight. Everyone picks up Mario Kart Eight for the for the Switch. Yes, it would have had they would have had to play the long game, but scalpers aren't going to get all of the PS5s forever. You know what I mean? By next year sometime, maybe early in the year even, I think supplies will be much better than they are now. And imagine having, finally getting your PS5, and you've been hearing from the people who do have uh, a PS5 or been playing Cyberpunk on the PC, hey, this game is great. It's really a great next-gen experience. You should try it for yourself. So you would say, oh, of course, I'll pick up Cyberpunk with my new system. And it would have been a fantastic long game for CD Projekt Red. And instead, short-term thinking has probably caused some serious damage to cyber or to CD Projekt's reputation. And like it or not, even if Cyberpunk is ultimately fixed up, it runs a lot better, a much better uh, next-gen version comes out on PS5 and Xbox Series X, they release some really good expansions, people are going to remember this. Oh, absolutely. So I'm thinking, are they actually going to spend all that time and manpower to fix the game, make it playable on the PS4? Because they have a long, long way to go if that's what their plans are, and they still have to update the game that they have uh, for the PC and the PlayStation 5. Well, they put out that message saying, yeah, we've committed to this. So yeah, they are going to put in the work to try and make uh, Cyberpunk work on uh, PlayStation Network. But more broadly, it's also exposed the kind of wonky refund schemes that were going on with PSN and Xbox One. And a large part of why I feel like this was delisted was because Sony was like going, oh, my God, all of these refunds. What the heck is going on? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yes. Someone at Sony woke up one day and said, oh, I will check the Internet. Oh, my God. So they probably put the put a pause on that. Yeah, they had to basically put a stopper in it because probably... I mean, people would be buying it, not knowing like how busted it was, and then be like, "Oh, what the heck? I want a refund on this." Jeez. So. Yeah. What a what a just a, I, I described it as a gong show on uh, on Twitter. So anyway, that is the story of Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven in twenty twenty. It's this year's big busted game. You know what's funny, Nadia? And like, I don't hate it. Um, I think that it's a pretty, in its own way, kind of a generic male power fantasy. I mean. It's so focused on making you feel so cool of course. driving around in your car in the well, future with Keanu Reeves. And it doesn't really interrogate a lot of its ideas particularly deeply, but in traditional video game terms, it does some cool things, honestly. I think that it does have a little bit of that CD Projekt touch, for example, with its side quests. Having said that, it's currently in a state where I kind of want to put it aside and play Yakuza Like a Dragon instead and then return to it when it is in A, much better shape, and B, maybe there's like some expansions coming out and they've had the time to rework some of the some of the things that aren't so great, as it were. So I, I would definitely say that if you are at least curious about Cyberpunk, maybe, maybe wait. Maybe wait to pick this one up. Yeah, uh, I am not going to pick it up for the PlayStation 4 unless I do some major, major, major work. And that's going to take a long time. So I'm not anticipating that will happen anytime soon. Um, by the time I get a PS5, I'll see where the game is. As you say, for now, um, I feel like it's not exactly The Witcher 3 Part 2. I, I think it's, uh, I have seen some praise for its side quests and for its, for its characters and writing, but not in the way that I saw praise for The Witcher 3, not in the way that God, Witcher 3 influenced so much of the industry. I don't think that's happening with Cyberpunk. 
in any regard. So I'll see where things go, like you. I think that Cyberpunk was always will always be destined to see as a little bit of a misstep, unless they monumentally improve it. They can. I mean, there are comeback stories in the game in the in the industry, of course. I mean, uh, No Mask Sky, A Realm Reborn, uh, Fallout seventy six to a certain degree. So um, we'll see if they can pull it off too. This is their big challenge. In happier news, Bravely Default 2, the final demo, is now out. And Nadia, you said it's a definite improvement over the first one, and it's good to see Square is taking its time with it. Yes, um, you can download it now. It is It replaces the original demo, so I think some people who have saved files from the original demo are a little bit mad, but I think it's worth it because the new demo, a long, a long time, sorry, about a month ago, the team talked a little bit about the changes they were implementing into the game based on uh, player feedback. And it looks like a lot of that was implemented into the demo. I find the graphics are a lot more interesting, a lot more, a lot brighter. They still don't exactly look like, uh, not going to blow you away, but I do like, there's like little touches on the enemies that I didn't notice before, like the lights shining on their skin. And, uh, you know, you have like a goblin with a huge belly that swings as it moves, that sort of, sort of like lots of little details that are really nice. The enemy has the enemy encounters have been way rebalanced enemies no longer charge you at the at your at first sight the battles are a lot more uh balanced you can choose like easy normal or hard i chose normal and i'm doing okay yeah and the overworld looks pretty nice uh, everything looks really good actually um there's little details i love like when nighttime falls your main character starts carrying a lantern i thought that was really cool and of course there's lots of just kind of bravely default in general if the battle system is still what it is the job system is still what it is uh you go into a town and it does that sort of panoramic view when you wait around or when you press the map button yeah it looks like it's going to be more bravely default and i think um i think people are going to like it and it has a freaking fantastic soundtrack because of course it does and thank God that is not coming out right now because who the heck would be paying any attention to it? Exactly. And I think that if there was any lesson to take away in 2020, it was, oh my God, slow down, just slow down, period. <laughs> oh my God, slow down, just pause, slow down, period. Yes, that's that's my advice for, for everyone heading into 2021. Honestly, the pandemic has been such a mess no matter where you are that it just feels like you should take more time, honestly. You should wait until next year to put out your game because the disruption of having to move everything home mm-hmm. and be able to handle the millions of small details, yes, millions, um, when it comes to making games, but in the ma- in the process of having your entire production pipeline completely disrupted, that's just too much to handle for everybody. Yeah, I'm... I'm honestly glad when the developers are just honest about, hey, COVID screwed us up. We got to take a little more time or we got to do this. Or we got to do that. Because when you think about it, people, not only were they moving from offices to their homes, but also everything that comes with home life. Uh, a lot of kids weren't in school. They had to do virtual learning and kids aren't always just going to sit there and, and learn nicely. Sometimes the parents have to be there with them. Uh, there's just tons more uh, stuff to do with like chores around the house everything working around the house is not as glamorous as you would think it is oh wow working around the house is not glamorous amazing yeah it's just uh, you look around and like oh god i haven't cleaned anything in weeks i should really get to that and it's like eh i'll do it later (laughs) you don't have to think about that when you're in an office (laughs) nadia gino is in super smash brothers as a me costume 
R.I.P. Super Mario RPG fans. Yeah, um, when I opened Twitter the other day, because I didn't get to see uh, Sakurai's presentation live, so I opened Twitter uh, a little bit later and saw people being really salty about Gino, and I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> uh, yeah, Gino isn't Smash, but as a Me Fighter costume, he looks like Gino as a Me. I think he was in Brawl as well, and you're looking pretty much at the same thing. So I think he's a Gunner character, and if he's in there as a Brawler, sorry, a Me Brawler, that means you're probably not going to see, you're guaranteed not to see him as a main character on the roster. And people were really, really holding out hope for Gino. And looks like those dreams are dashed. And I have to admit, I thought for sure he was going to be a main roster character. So I'm a little, I'm a little surprised. Not necessarily disappointed, but surprised. Did you really think that Gino was going to be a main roster character? Uh, just for some reason, it was in my gut somewhere that he was going to be on the main roster. But my gut was wrong. So you thought that a one-off character from a game that came out 24 years ago <laughs> and I mean that nobody nobody outside of a diamond hardcore of Super Mario Nintendo stands are going to remember you thought that character was going to be in Super Smash Brothers? I mean, Gino is the deepest of holes. We got like Rob and Mr. Game and & Watch and all this other like sort of flash in the pan stuff. But yeah, but they're like real parts of Nintendo history, right? Yeah. I mean, Rob the Robot was always kind of like this bit of Nintendo kitsch. And to have that in uh, Smash Brothers just kind of felt right. I, even if I hate Rob as a character, it's actually a completely <laughs> miserable you, character. Is he a bad and character? And Game & Watch was certainly not a flash in the pan. I mean, that True. was the uh, the fo a foundational part of Nintendo's business. And I mean also a foundational part of what would ultimately lead to the Game Boy. So to honor that part of history, again, feels completely right. I don't even think Gino is a good character design. As you can tell, I'm not. I'm, I'm on the anti-Gino yeah, bandwagon. Yeah, you've always been on the anti-Gino side. Yes. Please be mad at me, whatever. <laughs> the only reason that people ever thought Gino had a shot was because I think Sakurai said back in the days of Smash Brothers Brawl, Mm -hmm. That Gino might be a thing, and people latched onto that. And I don't understand that Gino's not a compelling character. I don't. Somebody explain the Gino phenomenon to me. I wonder if Sora will, because now people are latching onto Sora instead. Seems unlikely. I think that in choosing Sephiroth, that kind of slammed the door on Sora forever. Yeah, I think Square's got its foot in the door, and uh, they've got their roster. And they're good. So I'm wondering who's going to be next. I think the licensing issues are just too much. And yeah. also, if you just put in Sora, it feels kind of wrong to not have Donald and Goofy, for example. Ah. I mean, you can make it work. But if I'm a game designer, I'm like, well, I'm not able to capture the entire essence of Kingdom Hearts because there's no way Disney's going to allow Disney right. characters to be in my Nintendo mascot brawler, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, because you're right. If it did have Sora, you'd have to have moves that involved that involve uh, Mickey and Donald, uh, sorry, Goofy and Donald. And you're right, that probably not going to happen with the way Disney is these days, so protective and so monolithic. And I can imagine Nintendo making the request and the request immediately just getting sucked into the mass that is Disney and, and dissolving because it's just too big to even understand what's being asked of it. I think it's more likely that we see Nintendo first-party character uh, next. I think so. Or either that... Or they might honor something like Pokemon. Yeah, um, there has been there have been rumors about Cinderace, so I wouldn't be surprised to see him. 
I think Cinderace makes a lot of sense just because I think that next I don't think Pokemon Sword and Shield is done necessarily. Mm-hmm. Next year will be the 25th anniversary of Pokemon. So it just makes total sense to honor Pokemon in some way. And even if you're not putting in one of the original 151, Cinderace is perfectly cool. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I wouldn't mind Cinderace. We'd already have Incineroar, though, so I wonder if that would be too many fire types. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have too many fire types. Though it would be cool if they had an unexpected one. Maybe we already have a water type in Greninja, and then we have the fire type in Incineroar and Charizard. Why not put in a grass type? Decidueye, maybe. Mm, Decidueye could be a fun choice. Yeah. Um, I forget who the grass type in sword and shield is because i think i remember the sword the grass type being kind of boring in that game grookey oh right the little monkey right no i, I rillaboom rillaboom my bad like a rillaboom is actually a great choice rillaboom would be uh, that, that would be a great addition to pokemon sword and shield yes yeah, uh been a while since we had like a good heavy uh fighter mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think that you could do a lot with that character and it would be more interesting than just you know karate bunny Nadia, Nihon Falcom has revealed the next Trails game, Kuro no Kiseki. The game takes place in the Republic of Kalvard, to the east of Erebonia and the other familiar locales. The game focuses on Spriggan, a sort of for-hire organization that takes care of any and all requests. There's a new battle system that reportedly resembles FF7R's remix of mix of action and menus. Interesting fact. It's supposed to be a self-contained game, not a saga. We'll find out more about it in 2021. Uh, yeah, uh, apparently uh, the there's a new engine being used, and I guess that would probably be chalked up to the uh, new battle system as well. Uh, the revolves around, as you said, Spriggan, and it's funny, when I read about Spriggan, it made me think of Breath of Fire's Rangers, which are the same sort of thing. They're a group of people that do any and all sorts of work, it's usually how people get caught into adventures. Someone asks you to do something stupid that eventually <laughs> snowballs into saving the world. So I, I'm anticipating more of that here. I think the main character's name is Kuro. And, uh, I mean, it makes sense. It's in the title. And the thing I like about him already is that Nihon Falcom is very purposely not showing us his face. And there's even, like, anytime there's a screenshot of him, he's facing away from the camera. There's even uh, development art of him lying on a couch sleeping but he's got a magazine over his face and i thought that's pretty funny <laughs> i do like that as a sneaky way to hide his face yeah it's really cute uh so th- um what really surprises me is unless i'm misunderstanding this is not part of a saga the way that trails of cold steel games are which of course had four games in, in one whole one whole uh sequence uh i also read that some of the trails in the skies characters will be making an appearance here although it won't be as character choked as the previous games have been that was another complaint i heard about uh, the Trails of Cold Steel games is that there's too many characters to keep track of. So it looks like this might be a little slimmer, a little quicker, a little everything, a little more everything. So um, I'm curious to see more about it next year when it's supposed to come out. And God knows when we're getting a localization. I will say that I think making it a self-contained game is a good call because there's a little bit of saga creep going on with the Trails games. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... I think that if Yakuza 0 showed anything, a game that's accessible and tells more of a standalone story can be a great entry point for people because people were kind of feeling overwhelmed by Yakuza, you know, by Yakuza 4, Yakuza 5. So to go back to Yakuza 0 and make it a prequel and kind of a standalone experience made it 
people were like, oh, yeah, that's the one I should be playing. And it turned out that Yakuza 0 ended up being one of the most beloved games in the entire series. So to have a standalone game for the Trail series seems like the right call to me. Yeah, I think so, because I could see the whole... It doesn't make a whole lot of financial sense to make these games where someone says, oh, can I start here? No, you can't. You'll get completely lost. And that's not something that happens with video games very often. And as much as I do love the fact that they did take a risk and make a saga, I understand why they want to just simplify things a little bit more with starting over and and just kind of seeing where things go from there. And finally, small bit of personal news for me. Super Robot Wars Original Generations now officially has a fan translation on the PlayStation 2. That's very exciting. Because Super Robot Wars Original Generations is one of the best games in the series. It's not been available in English until this point. Of course, being able to actually play it and being able to uh, attach that patch is a little bit trickier. Yeah. But uh, I think it's worth going through the trouble. Have you played it? Yes, I have. Uh, Super Robot Wars Original Generations is kind of interesting, Nadia, because originally... There were these GBA games, right, that came out. In, they did actually come out in America, but they were somewhat simple. And OG, the OG games on the PS2 dramatically expanded it and really had gorgeous graphics. And while, while these games were not the first instances of the original characters getting their own stories, it was kind of the games that really solidified it, in my opinion, that solidified them as stars in their own right. This would have been uh, 2007, thereabouts, when I was actually living in Japan. But I wasn't I wasn't that much into Super Robot Wars yet at that time. So I, I missed it initially, though I did pick up a copy eventually and, and, and play it. But yeah, um, SRW OG. And not only that, because SRW OG got a sequel on the PlayStation 3. Now you can play that. Then you can play the PlayStation 3 version. You got an entire dang saga to go through. So very exciting. Well, that's really cool that they actually took the time to translate uh, such an older version of the game, obviously an older, more beloved version of the game. But uh, the only problem would be, I guess, playing it would be a little bit difficult because I'm not sure about how to patch PlayStation 2 games. But I suppose if you are a fan, it it seems like it's worth the effort. I'm sure there's YouTube tutorials and everything out there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can totally make it work. So if you are willing to take the time and you're curious about Super Robot Wars, go get this game. I think this is going to be... A great holiday break game if you're not playing Yakuza. Okay, Nadia, let's continue on to the biggest RPG stories of 2020, and let's recap the year. Okay, Nadia, it's time to recap the year in RPGs that was 2020. Obviously, a deeply strange year, uh, an unprecedented year in so many ways. When I look back on what I was expecting at the beginning of the year, I certainly did not expect this, and nobody did, honestly. No, I was just thinking, well, it's going to be a nice, uneventful year, be at US Gamer, and we'll keep building the site, and oh, looking forward to PAX, and oh dear, it's all gone terribly, terribly wrong. Yeah, I think the first inkling that everything was obviously going to be kind of weird and bad was maybe in February when we were starting to hear information about the pandemic and we were going, are they going to cancel GDC? Is that a thing? Is that possible? I remember I had the flu because I got the flu in in January and I was just stuck in bed looking at videos on Twitter of, of hospitals in Wuhan and I said, 
this doesn't look good. Uh, I hope someone is paying attention. And of course, you had people saying, oh, these are fake videos. You can't trust them. And I'm like, they don't look fake. They look, that looked like really distressed doctors and nurses that I'm looking at right now. Um, yeah. And uh, it turned out they were quite real. Yeah. And then we obviously all went into lockdown and we had to completely adjust our lives and figure out new ways to do things. And, and in many ways, video games in some ways were not impacted. Like we were still playing Animal Crossing and we were still playing Final Fantasy VII Remake and people glommed on to these games. There was a huge surge in like Steam traffic and people watching uh, Twitch streams and playing games in general. And then everybody kind of got burned out in the summer. Everybody got depressed and it was just like, please let this end. (laughs) Entertainment is not enough to salve the soul or put a paycheck put food in my belly if I got laid off from my job so yeah yeah it hasn't been an easy year and I feel like I feel like summer was a little bit of a reprieve because people at least here the curve was flattened for a, a long while and we were able to kind of go out and do things within caution within reasonable distances and, and what have you but then fall came and it just the surge is worse than ever people are stuck indoors it's cold it's it's kind of a miserable way to end the year, but the first vaccines are out, so there is hope on the horizon. There is indeed hope on the horizon. At this point, I know I've been in lockdown long enough that I can't really remember what real life is like. Me neither. It's honestly. been a while. <laughs> I'm like going, what? I might be able to go out and meet friends and travel. Is this a thing? I don't understand. It's still going to be a while, but at least there's a light. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, but one of the major impacts that pandemic had was delays, delays, delays. Um, it upended a lot of release schedules. Uh, I mean, cert teams were literally not able to come into the office, mm-hmm. which kind of s- slowed down things. You could, you had to figure out spe- special socially distanced ways to do motion capture. Which, good luck. Um, we saw games like Bravely Default too get delayed into 2021. And of course, a major one, Cyberpunk, I mean, that should have been delayed into 2021 as well, shouldn't it? Yeah, it most certainly should have been delayed for, God, another year if necessary. And again, the outrage would have been like really rabble, 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 Mm. but still nothing compared to what's going on now. So they took a gamble and they lost. AAA game release dates are an inexact science at the best of times, but in pandemic times, mm, not so great. Yeah, I mean, I have to give props to Microsoft because when they saw the reaction to uh, Halo Infinite, they said, okay, you know what, we're going to delay this another year and make it good. And I've been at Walmart and what have you, uh, all wrapped up in like biosuits practically, and I see the merchandise on the shelves for toys, for promotions, uh and all the stuff tied up into Halo Infinite. So they essentially lost a lot of marketing money to take the time to make this game right based on fan reaction. And I think that's kind of admirable, especially in the wake of of what's going on with CD Projekt Red. So, Nadia, you have this as a separate story, but I'm going to call a little bit of an audible and put a different story in there. But in the meantime, uh, you have cyberpunk discourse in general sustained screaming from (laughs) from a cat. (laughs) That's one of my okay to describe it. I I put under the headline of our notes under uh, cyberpunk discourse in general a picture of a, a tortoiseshell cat like kind of meowing and it says underneath in caption sustained screaming. Uh, this it's a good reaction image. It's one of my favorites. 
But as you put in the bullet points, it was delayed several times over. The cyberpunk social media account was making fun of trans people. Uh, there were horrific bugs. And then, of course, you got to love this. They deliberately misled reviewers by making it so they could not play the base console version during the review period and also dramatically restricting who could actually review it. As of this recording, we still don't have a review up on US Gamer because our reviewer is still playing it. What a disaster. It really is. And I think CD Projekt Red, besides ruining things with their fans, they also kind of broke uh, uh, almost a bond of trust that happens between reviewers and uh, publishers. Because if mm-hmm. if they're not giving you... I understand publishers want you to see the best version of their game. That's all. That's very common. Okay, here's the PC version. It's the best one. Okay, we'll review this. But it usually means that even if the PlayStation 4 version doesn't function as well or isn't as fancy looking, it still works. You can still say, okay, you know what, maybe the PlayStation version, PlayStation 4 version isn't as, as fancy, but if you don't have a PC, sure, go for it. It's still a, a good game for what it is. And you cannot say that with the PlayStation 4 version. And Cyber, uh, sorry, CD Projekt Red did everything it could to make sure we did not see that version of the game. And... I think maybe more reviewers should have kind of been a little bit more suspicious of that. I think it's pretty obvious that CD Projekt was operating in bad faith Very. Uh, this, through this entire thing. They wanted to make sure that they got the review scores that they needed. They wanted to make sure that their pre-orders weren't just jeopardized and that they would get the bump that they needed when the game actually came out. And it ended up blowing up in their face in many, many ways, as tends to happen when you operate in bad faith in the video game industry so uh we i mean we've already talked about cyberpunk ad nauseum we don't want to talk about it anymore yeah i think uh, we've we've tapped the the cyberpunk discourse i just want to know what the hell were they thinking that's it how do they think the heck were they thinking how do they think they would get away with it but you're right it's just what else is there to say at this point they really really bunged it up so hard in more positive news and perhaps more surprising news and maybe this ties into cyberpunk a little bit as well is that the next-gen consoles were actually able to come out. And if you think about all of the difficulties that everybody had during the pandemic, it's actually kind of a miracle that these games were released at all because, I mean, you have to think about supply chains, being able to actually manufacture these dang things, being able to develop them. And even still, like the Xbox Series X and the PS5 both had their share of issues. They were missing features. It all felt... The tiniest bit half-baked, shipping allotments resulted in huge shortages, which resulted in tons of scalping. Uh, But in the end, the next-gen consoles did come out, and ultimately the PS5 and the Xbox Series X, pretty cool, I think. I'll have to take your word for it, because the scalpers keep screwing (laughs) me over. Oh, I'm so sorry, Nadia. Uh, It's okay. It's what I expected, and frankly, there's nothing I really want yet until maybe something will come out next year. Like I think Final Fantasy XVI is the game I have my eye on for the PlayStation 5 game I need, but for now it's just, eh, whatever. I'll, I'll just uh, hang on to my backlog. There's not like there's not tons of stuff coming out for PlayStation 4 still, you know? I play, I've play. i played my Xbox Series X the most, and that's mostly because I've been playing Yakuza, a game that I can play on other platforms. Exactly, and I'm sure it runs really well on the Xbox Series X. Oh yeah, great. Yeah. Well, load times are very, very smooth. It looks good. I'm jealous. Yeah, I like it. And then also uh, over on the PS5, there's Demon's Souls. Um, I'm on record as saying that I don't really see this one as an RPG per se. But, mm-hmm. I mean, that's certainly the the gold standard crown jewel next-gen release. But Soulsborne games are also not for everybody. So, yeah. I really, in, 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 our, in RPG terms, I really feel like the best is 
certainly yet to come. I, I'm sure that we'll have a really good RPG coming out on a next-gen console around this time next year. Um, hopefully it'll be Starfield. We'll see. Yeah, I'm looking forward to what's next, and uh, I think it's going to be a, a good year. All right. This is a big one, Nadia. It's so big that we had an emergency podcast That's around right. it. Yes, we did. Bethesda now belongs to Bill Gates. In September, Microsoft acquired ZeniMax and Bethesda along with it. That means that Starfield, Elder Scrolls, Fallout, some of the biggest RPG series around are now under the Microsoft umbrella. In other words, between this, Microsoft has cornered something like 50% of the Western RPG market because they also have Obsidian. Yes, that's amazing. Holy cow. And Todd Howard apparently thought this was not a big deal? <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> he he was really surprised by the reaction. He just I think he just thought he was just doing a sale. Like, yeah, it's business. Sure, go ahead. But, uh, of course, everyone lost their minds when the news broke. And he was just, oh, oh, I guess this is kind of a big deal. Yes, it is. Uh, because, as you said, that is something like 50% of the Western RPG market that belongs to Microsoft now. And you like the deal or don't like the deal i have you know i have problems with conglomerates but i still have to admit that we're going to see some pretty interesting rpg stuff from microsoft in 2021 and i never thought i'd say that about microsoft and rpgs i hate the deal i don't like it i wish it hadn't happened it worries me because when something gets that big and starts calling the rules it's just it affects so so much I hate conglomerates. I yeah. wish that Bethesda would stay independent. I would like there to be absolutely no question about Fallout and uh, and Starfield and Elder Scrolls Six being on a PlayStation console. Right. I'm not that big a fan of exclusives, if I'm being perfectly honest. People obsess over them in a console wars kind of kind of way, and I don't mind you know, internal studios being developed that turn out to be really cool and like give a a system a little character. But when you're just vacuuming up studios, including mega publishers and be like, nope, it's us now. This is ours now. This is an exclusive. You're just kind of like, oh, really? Come on. Yeah. yeah it's not like they're putting a whole bunch of work into this, except throwing a lot of money at these studios. And to be fair, I am glad that they will have financial stability and Microsoft seems to be pretty good about staying out of their business and letting them do I mean, their own thing. Zenimax about to go out of business uh, all of a sudden? Is this a thing? I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know. think they are too worried about financial stability. That's true. I guess I'm thinking more in terms of Obsidian. But yeah. it's just, it, what worries me is like, okay, yeah, for now, Microsoft is apparently cool, letting them have their creative freedom. All it takes is one jackass up top to change their mind or someone new to come in and, and change everything below them. It it just that's a kind of thing that worries me when I think a huge company is controlling all our entertainment. I think that the reason that Microsoft decided to do this is that they looked at Sony and were like, "No, you got all the JRPGs and all the Japanese developers want to go to you. That's cool. We'll just have all the Western RPGs and that'll be our brand." Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, that's not great. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, okay, well, we tried and failed to get the Japanese market. Tell you what, we're just we're taking all the Western market and going home. Yeah. So in the end, uh, I mean, okay, I guess I'm going to put on a console bias hat or something. But I think that the PlayStation is more popular and that's why it's kind of having people grumbling a lot and then beyond that i think a lot of people want to have the greatest range of 
I don't think people want to have to own multiple systems just to be able to play the games that they want to play, right? Like, I understand. It kind of sucks to have to be like, well, I have to make a really hard choice now. Do I want Sony exclusives? And then also I need to get an Xbox so that I can play my uh, these Bethesda games? Or do I have to get a gaming PC to be able to play these Bethesda games? Or do I just have to suck it up and say RIP to Miles Morales and then just be able to play these games on the Xbox? That's that's a hard choice and I don't like it. No, it is a hard choice. And these these consoles are not cheap. And I can see Microsoft saying, okay, well, here's Fallout whatever on the PlayStation. But that would certainly not be until after a, a long period of exclusivity. And finally, on the next-gen tip, Final Fantasy 16 was revealed this year. It was unveiled earlier this year, supposedly coming in 2021 instead of 10 years from now. Supposedly. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> it features a more realistic medieval style, which some people are not a fan of. Naoki Yoshida and parts of the Final Fantasy 14 team are on this one. And given how Shadowbringers is my favorite Final Fantasy story since 6, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Fair enough, Nadia. Yeah, it really is, because when people say Shadowbringers is like one of the best Final Fantasy stories, they are not exaggerating. It was, it blew me away, and blew away Mike. Definitely my favorite story since Final Fantasy VI, uh, at, or even like Heaven's Word, which is another Final Fantasy XIV story. So I feel like we're going to get something really special out of sixteen, and I hope that's the case. And I hope that people kind of keep the faith and trust of the really annoying, loud, pushy Final Fantasy fourteen fandom when we say, no, this is going to be pretty good, give it a chance. When you say that Final Fantasy 16 is, or Final Fantasy 14 Shadowbringers is your favorite story, I'm curious, what aspect of that story would you like to see in Final Fantasy 16? I think Final Fantasy uh, 14 in general, and something that really, really comes out in Final Fantasy 14 Shadowbringers is the, the camaraderie between the characters. The characters, the NPCs are all so really well developed. They have their own stories. Uh, they have their own histories. And they're just so well written to the point that when something happens like to them, you just sometimes find yourself crying like a baby. It's just really, really intense crew. And I think that Yoshida, uh, his team, is incredible at writing these NPCs. So I think that will transfer well into 16. I hope it does. I do too. Um, I don't. I, I hope Final Fantasy 16 is good. It's not the kind of look or feel that I want out of a Final Fantasy per se. I, I want to say it just doesn't feel doesn't feel Final Fantasy enough to me. Like that gritty medieval look. It's kind of weird, honestly. But I mean, when I think of Final Fantasy, I think of Final Fantasy Nine. That's, that's what I think of. It, it's it's kind of like well, being a really old Final Fantasy fan, I had my this is not Final Fantasy stage with with seven, and I got over that. And I realized, okay, Final Fantasy is Final Fantasy, and I think that will be the case with 16 as well. I've, having played so much of 14, I can feel a lot of 14 within 16 already. So I, it just, to me, feels like, okay, this is Yoshida Final Fantasy. I'm, I'm down. But there's a flavor to Final Fantasy, and I'm not detecting this in 16 so far. And honestly, I didn't really detect it that much in 15 either. A kind of over-the-top feel to it, the, the ridiculous costumes, the... Uh, insane crazy fun worlds right and to a great degree final fantasy 14 captures that it has a real amazing love of final fantasy for for f's sake You're, one of the mounts that you have is the magitech armor in that game like, not only do you have the magitech armor you have all the versions of the magitech armor that you see <laughs> like remember how in final fantasy 6 you had the amano magitech armor that he designed 
and you have the kind of in-game sprite, less fantastic Magitek armor, you can get both of those. You can get more. Basically, any or any Magitek armor that an enemy was riding in 6, you can get in 14. It's absolutely ridiculous. So I see where you're coming from, but this is where I say, well, I want to get you, give you Yoshida the benefit of the doubt, because all we've seen so far is a trailer or two or a teaser. I can't even remember at this point. And when you talk about Final Fantasy 7 VII and 8, even those games aren't that far removed from Final Fantasy VI, which in turn I don't think is that far removed from Final Fantasy V. It's just that once we get into whatever the heck this is, I don't know. Um, I, I will give it the benefit of the doubt. I will. Hopefully, it'll be good. I, like I said, I have a lot of faith that Yoshida can turn around a good game, and I think that it's actually going to come out this year, which is kind of an amazing thing to think about we, with the Final we Fantasy. We do game. have chocobos. Let us. I mean, it's a Final Fantasy game. <laughs> there <on>. you go. <laughs> Uh, so I hope that this inaugurates a kind of a new and smooth era for Final Fantasy after the kind of nonsense of the past decade. That would be really nice. I'm really actually hoping we will, if we don't see part two of Remake, that we will hear something about Remake and it will be coming out. Oh, it's coming out early 2020. Uh, sorry, God, no. Early 2022 and we're on track and everything's really cool. Wow, Final Fantasy VII Remake was good and Final Fantasy sixteen might be good. What a strange time. Exactly. And speaking of Final Fantasy VII Remake, let's talk about the biggest RPGs of 2020. And I think that there is no bigger RPG that has come out this year than Final Fantasy VII Remake, Nadia. Yes, I think Final Fantasy VII Remake got the nod for top RPGs for a lot of people, uh, especially in the Game Awards. It got the, it got the gold, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a strange, troubled game that I ended up really loving. And I think you're the same. Yeah, Final Fantasy VII Remake, it's so many ways. So it was originally announced in 2015, right? Yeah, God. And and it had barely, work had barely started on it. <laughs> there was maybe an apocryphal story of Nomura being like, what, I'm the director? <laughs> what? <laughs> What's going on? I just woke up. Qua? Qua. Um, and then it took a solid five years to actually make this thing, which, hey, I mean, that's a shorter amount of time than it took to make Cyberpunk. So there you go. There you go. And it finally comes out and everybody's kind of going, this is going to be a disaster, right? Surely this is going to be a disaster. There's just no way that they can capture the spirit of the original Final Fantasy VII, one of the weirdest games of all time and one of the quirkiest and it's just from a different era. There's just no way that you can translate that to next gen. And they did. They did. They somehow did. They, yep. And even though the story is kind of bananas, the characters are are just so perfectly done that I can overlook so many of the game's flaws. I went back and reread my Final Fantasy VII Remake review not too long ago. And I, I feel pretty good about that review still. I... A lot of the a lot of my misgivings from it have faded away in a lot of ways. Like I really hated the dungeons. In that yeah, game. dungeons like, weren't great. I think that was one of the big blahs for me. I wouldn't even. It was rare for me to sit and finish a dungeon in one sitting. I would get so bored with it that I just say, "Okay, I'm saving. Goodbye. See you later." And there are parts of, especially the graphics, that could be uneven. Mm-hmm. And I also forgot, in some ways, just how much I hated that ending. I really <laughs> hated the ending when it first happened. <laughs> You did. You were so, as I recall, you would sit up all night to finish the game in time to write the review, and you were just so mad about the ending. You would not stop about how mad you were. I think I said that my opinion on it was somewhere between four, like the score was somewhere between four and negative four billion. Yes. 
was. <laughs> you were salty. Because I, I thought that the final boss battle was so pandering. I'm like, come on, guys. Give me a freaking break. And you're completely undercutting uh, the power of the reveal in the second part of the game. And you were really overstretching what was, in effect, the, the tutorial area. The Midgar is a tutorial area. It's right. a self-contained little thing. It's like trying to stretch White Orchard from Witcher 3 into a full crazy game and in a lot of ways i felt like final fantasy 7 remake had some missed opportunities like i thought that they could have done a lot more with the side quests and the and the world building it's just that when i think about it months later all of that has fallen away and all i can think about are its strengths its strengths being it was a beautiful game yes it was really gorgeous uh, some spectacular art, just absolutely spectacular, especially when they were above the plate. In oh, the yeah. Car. So beautiful. That was really nice. Uh, they really captured what the slums, what I kind of imagined the slums to look like because I always admire the detail that they put into the slums in the original game and they did not skimp on that detail um, and that horrible, awful, gritty soul in the remake. And, of course, I think the battle system was good. Yeah, uh, it was I think good. that it was, it made sense to me it was kinetic. It felt sharp and exciting. It managed to have the excitement of real-time combat. It felt like I had control over my party. It felt tactical, which is really all I really want from that kind of combat. They managed to square the circle, and I, I'm shocked, honestly. I was expecting the worst combat, and instead it was really good. Yeah, when we first saw the combat, everyone thought, oh, God, this is just hack and slash like Final Fantasy XV, not a fan. I don't, I don't mind one way or the other. I just, I liked the battle system in 15, but I like sevens better. I think it's a lot more uh, controlled. But mm. the problem was just, the boss fights were great, but the dungeons were so boring. So that was my main complaint with Final Fantasy VII. But the thing with Final Fantasy VII Remake is that even if the dungeons hurt you and you were like, oh God, I hate myself, I hate this game, what would follow would be this character moment that would just make everything better. And it really worked to the game's advantage. Yeah, the character moments really made it, right? I think that they did such a spectacular job with every single character in 7 Remake, especially Tifa and Aerith, but especially Jesse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jesse was just amazing. Wedge was my favorite. I'm... I loved Wedge, and they got Badger from Breaking Isn't Bad to play him. He was and what a perfect voice <laughs> acting. The voice acting in FF7 Remake was so good. <laughs> And the way they did Cloud as they finally got rid of that angsty, horrible Advent children Paul and gave him back his sort of sad, lost, goofy, but try-hard nature that I liked from the first game. They made him a dork. I love it. Oh, he's a total dork, and everyone knows it, but he, he, he thinks nobody knows it. And the environments are so beautifully realized from the game, like the church and the Midgar slums yes. and everything, especially the area around Eris house is just yes, gorgeous. Perfect. Yeah. Like when you go out and pick flowers, like it's just a, it's a really nicely realized area and it gives you the impression. It kind of drives home the impression that Aerith is someone really special because she can make all this happen in the slums. And there were some, you know, interesting uh, boss battles. <laughs> the Rufus battle was pretty tough. And actually it was, harder than i was expecting in a lot of ways especially if you cranked it up to hard and you were think fighting enemies like the hell house which by the way the hell house fight like 
when I was fighting the Hell House, I was like, oh my god, this game is really good. I like this game a lot. That was a that was a really fun uh, a really fun fight because for ages everyone was making fun of the remake, like, oh, how are they going to bring in the the silly house with the the you know transforms? And they did. They sure did. And they even got Don Corneo right. Holy cow. Yeah, I'm surprised at that too. Like I was expecting there's like there's no way that they can get the uh the cloud cross dressing scene and everything that's happening in that entire area right. But not only did they get it right, that was the best freaking part of the game. The hand massage part was hilarious. Like I still laugh at that when you when you cheap out and only pay for like a hundred gil for a hand massage, uh, Madame M just goes bananas on Cloud's hand and practically breaks it. She's like, you asked for this, now take it like a man. And you just hear him screaming in pain. <laughs> so don't cheap I, out. Even though I have a lot of games in my backlog, including Persona 5 Royal, mm-hmm. um, like, there's a part of me that kind of want to go, wants to go back and uh, replay FF7 Remake. What do you want? Like I I, there, I still have a lot of misgivings about it, and I kind of side-eye it. And, and let's be honest, like that ending very Kingdom Hearts C in a way that still irritates me, but I can't deny how bold it is mm-hmm. uh, taking, in its own way, crafting a sequel as much as a an actual remake. And I I take my hat off to Square. It's more successful than I ever thought possible, even though I gave it a 3.5 out of 5. Yeah, I think you said it was the best 3.5 out of 5 you'll ever give, and I, I see where you're coming from. It might be the only 3.5 out of 5 that makes my top 10 list. And in the end, it's going to make my top 10 list. It's going to be at like number 10, but it's going to be up there. Yeah, me too. Definitely. Let's hear it from the audience. I asked people, well, what was your favorite RPG? And Final Fantasy VII Remake came up a lot. Yeah, earlier. not surprised. Cal says, for me, it's FF7R. It is certainly not perfect, but it could have been a complete dumpster fire. This is true. They managed to take a game that people adore, change it pretty significantly, and still give us something that feels like FF7. The story still feels right. The music and graphics are great. Combat is somehow fantastic, my biggest fear. And they managed to take characters we all love and make them even better. It could go off the rails with part two, but for now, it's an amazing achievement. And Wade Langer says, FF7R, the music, the fully recreated Midgar, the fact I'm having spectacular conversations about a 23-year-old story is impressive. Plus, it may be my favorite battle system ever i played p5r i played dq11 witcher and others but this is the one i keep thinking about so final fantasy 7 remake really struck a chord yeah it did and i think it's the game that i keep thinking about is a good way to sum it up because as imperfect as it was it's a game that's worth thinking about certainly one of the biggest rpgs of the first half of the year one of the biggest rpgs of the second half of the year was yakuza like a dragon so I don't think at the beginning of the year anybody really expected this to be the big one, but Yakuza just keeps building up and building up and getting a bigger and bigger audience, and it really benefited from having the spotlight on it, I feel, as basically the launch exclusive for Xbox Series X <laughs> on console. Uh, yeah, that definitely boosted its fortunes a bit, and I really feel like this is one of those games where word of mouth, and more importantly... Social media gifts help get people aware of what a great, strange game it is. I mean, we've talked about Yakuza Like a Dragon already, but I mean, I think Persona with adult uh, F-up characters is a pretty strong hook. It's an extremely strong hook when you are 40 years old, Kat. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I can identify with these characters, Nadia. Like, I identify with each and every one of them. Yeah, like, I I have said this before, but... 
for Westerners, I think it's an important game in a way because it does show you that even though we think of Japan as a social utopia where everyone's taken care of, that's just not the case. It's not the case anywhere, really. Who thinks of Japan as a social utopia? My God. (laughs) Jeez. I feel like people are surprised to learn that there are things like homeless people in Japan, like... I was not expecting mm. Tokyo to go outside at 3 a.m. and just see lines and lines and lines of homeless people. Like, I, I'd never seen anything like that. And I think a lot of people feel, you know, they kind of have a myopic view of Japan that Yakuza, obviously, it's not like supposed to be taken a serious education, but it certainly talks about the, the social problems in Japan, especially with older populations being ignored or people living in poverty, having nowhere to go, having nowhere to work because... They, they've lost everything. It's, uh, it's a very funny game, but extremely, extremely bittersweet. Real talk. I do not live in Japan. I, I mean, I lived in Japan for three years. I, I have a lot of friends who still live in Japan. And you can almost see the bonds of the social order starting to break down because so people are so burned out, burned out and overworked and just not interested in having kids. And in one way or another, it's just taking a horrific mental toll uh, over what seems like the entire population. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about a country that's broken in its own kind of unique way? I mean, maybe look no further than Japan. It's a country that's been burned out, and it's so it's, it's pretty distressing, honestly. And it seems to get worse year by year. And maybe Yakuza Like a Dragon, and to a lesser extent Persona 5, seems to understand that. And I wouldn't be surprised over if over the next 10 years or so, we start seeing more and more games like that. Yes, yes. And I think they are important and I, I welcome I welcome them and I welcome playing them. Not only that, but like the, the kind of the corruption yes. that is happening in the Japanese government. That is another thing that is a major theme in Persona 5 and in Yakuza Like a Dragon. Because in uh, the Japanese government, it's been effectively one party rule for a very long time. And when you have basically one party rule, you're going to have a lot of graft. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of clicks. You're going to have a lot of people being pushed out. And I mean, Yakuza Like a Dragon, one of the kind of the key enemies is basically the corrupt police department. Yeah, they don't hold back with that. That's for sure. Uh, Same with, Mm -hmm. I think, Persona. uh, I don't remember Persona took on the police as well, but they did take on the government. Because I remember there was that actually really excellent side quest where you tried to help that politician who was... You're helping out Bernie. Bernie, Trying to get back into the government. Yeah, and that kind of (laughs) touches on the corruption that's going on in the government when, of course, the main, gosh, the main quest is all about corruption in the government. But beyond that, Yakuza Like a Dragon, it has heart, it has Ichiban Kasuga, who, who is just a wonderful, lovely character. I mean, he is, he's somebody that you're rooting for. Definitely. The very start, Nadia, because he is, he just wants love. He's this kid who's been pushed out. He has nobody and he gets taken in by a father figure and then betrayed by that father figure. This all happens within like the first hour of the game. So please, this is not a spoiler. Not a spoiler. But, <laughs> uh, and he has to rebuild himself. He has to build himself back up. And meanwhile, he's just, he's so pure in his passions. He loves the Yakuza, I guess. And he also loved Dragon Quest, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I got to appreciate that. But Ichiban is... Almost a tragic character because, yes, he is very mm. cheerful, very heroic, and he gets a lot of that thrown back in his face, and he keeps coming back to mm. his credit. But he is so damaged because he will latch on to anyone who gives him, shows him any sort of love or companionship. And if they do him terribly wrong, he still defends them and says, no, something else must be at the root here. Maybe this is my fault. So he does not take care of himself very well. When I look at, I think the maybe the only drawback is that 
while the combat is pretty good, I think the the dungeons get to be a bit of a grind ultimately. Um, I I don't say this very often, Nadia, but this is one of those games where I want the combat to go away so that the characters keep talking. I want the story parts of this game. Yeah, the story parts are, are definitely its strongest, uh, definitely its strongest feature. Um, another game that does that I'm just going to mention very quickly because it's not an RPG is uh, Thirteen Sentinels. I feel like the battles in that is a strategy game i feel like the battles are really really secondary compared to the really crazy amazing story that they have telling there and i feel like the battles just interrupt all that and it's kind of the same with yakuza yeah and it's just fun exploring yokohama and being able to visit various areas and take on the mini games i think that the mini game where you're running a company is fantastic not the least because you have a chicken on your board or something like that <laughs> yes there's a chicken i can't remember the chicken's name but it was really good its name is omelette omelette that's right good old omelette so good uh it, it just has a spirit of fun to it that i really appreciate and i guess i just really connect with the individual characters but yeah yakuza like a dragon Probably one of the most surprising RPGs of the year. I ended up really adoring it. Uh, this is what the uh, some of the fans said. Mike Staub says, Yakuza Like a Dragon's my favorite. It's like the Edgar Wright take on <laughs> RPG. <laughs> Funny and thoughtful and finding a way to play, both pay homage to the tropes of the drama while also having fun with them. Playing as characters in their 40s were almost as welcome as they tackled real world problems. Ah, that is so right, Mike. I it mean, is. first of all, speaking as somebody who loves Edgar Wright films, that genre self-awareness is a really good observation. And Edgar Wright absolutely loves having burned out 40-year-old nerds as his <laughs> protagonist. So in that case, Ichiban <laughs> Kaska would be right there in Shaun of the Dead, honestly. He should be up for a Yakuza movie. Oh my god, I would totally watch an Edgar Wright Yakuza movie. That'd be amazing. That'd be like a Like a Dragon movie. That'd be fantastic. I think it could work. I mean... A lot of video games, you look at the story and say, that's not going to really make a good movie. But uh, I feel like Yakuza could certainly make a, like a dragon, could certainly make a good movie. And then Sky Griever says, it's definitely my game of the year. Where else can you recruit a chicken, a chimpanzee, and a giant Roomba <laughs> to manage Roomba. your business? I love that. It's true. Yeah. It's true. I mean, I just, so we were talking about the flavor of Final Fantasy and how I want them to be able to capture that. Yakuza has its own distinct flavor, and Yakuza Like a Dragon perfectly highlights it. It can one moment be deeply silly and deeply ridiculous, and then another moment it can be so heartfelt. And there are even parts where there's like it's really dramatic. It's really amazing how effectively they manage to maintain the balance at all times. Yes, uh, that's one thing about the Yakuza series in general is they walk this really incredible line between uh, surrealist humor that's also really dry in that Japanese way, but also extremely extremely touching and and heartfelt and it's a very hard line to walk and they do it really expertly continuing on this one is a maybe a little bit surprising nadia but number three this one is a port that we have been waiting for a long time this game finally got localized in 2020 which was terribly exciting that is moon remix rpg adventure which is kind of described as the anti-rpg the game that is designed to send up a lot of RPG troops in a in a way almost a spiritual companion to like Yakuza Like a Dragon, a game that itself man it enjoyed having a certain genre awareness, as it were. 
Yeah, I think a better comparison might be Undertale because Toby Fox, mm. even though he never played the game before he made Undertale, he was inspired by the concept of Moon, which was don't fight monsters, protect them instead of fighting them. And com- whereas combat is, is always a central theme of RPGs, especially JRPGs of the 16-bit era and 32-bit era, Moon tried to do something different by making it more of a pacifist game about finding out. It's just kind of, you almost play as a secondary observer of what's going on around you. And that's how you interact with the game. And that's how you observe the hero, the character you usually play, and sees kind of a a murderous jerk. And (laughs) so it's, it's there to teach you certain lessons i honestly found the game a little too opaque for me so i i put it down but i would like to go back to it sometime i just it it just feels bad for the little monsters that you're always killing in dragon quest yeah exactly and well dragon quest's credit sometimes you get to recruit those monsters and become friends with them but no this is definitely a game that makes you think about the monsters that you slay and the heroes who are who call themselves heroes and how they barge into uh, NPCs' houses and take all their shit and <laughs> what have you. Moon Remix RPG Adventure was, you know, it was lost to history for so long, at least in the United States, because it never was localized. So to have it localized and put on a a, a popular platform is really good for the RPG kind of uh, history. And I just wanted to make sure to highlight it in our list of favorite RPGs of 2020. Yeah, it was certainly a special release. And as you said, it sets a good precedent because we still have a lot of lost RPGs from that era that never got translations, never got a, a good push in the West. So I- Terra Nigma. There you Terra go. Nig- what were you saying? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'd love to see the Quintet trilogy uh, like in a collection on the Switch, please. Tyler Olu says, My Heart Belongs to Moon Remix RPG Adventure for the Switch. Regardless of when it came out in Japan, it came out to the West this year and I adore it. Turns the genre on its head while also exploring its finest qualities. Felt so good to help those creatures in such a harsh year. Oh, it's very wholesome. Almost kind of like that that Animal Crossing feeling, doesn't it? It is definitely about loving little animals and that's what you need in 2020. Number four is another re-release slash port slash update. I guess it's not really a port. It's expanded re-release. Anyway, that game is Persona 5 Royal, a game that I am surprised ended up getting as much heat as it did just because Persona 5, as popular as it ended up being, I felt like in its own weird way, felt a little controversial with uh, the fans of the series, Nadia. And did it? I I think most people liked it beyond Mm. some complaints like, oh, the translation wasn't as good as 4, which is true. I feel like most people really liked 5. Maybe... Maybe it's living in a different reality. Yeah, they reality. did. I, I guess maybe people liked it so much, but whenever people would talk about it, they'd be like, oh, well, you know, after the whole rivers in the desert and the pyramid, it starts to get too long. This game, like, really out- overstays its welcome. And also, I'm kind of dis- I'm still kind of disappointed with how it handles queer issues, specifically its gay panic scene. And it's, again, its localization wasn't as good as it could have been. It didn't go as far as it maybe needed to in tackling Japanese social issues, etc. And I felt like that discourse drowned out maybe the qualities that were good about Persona 5 in some ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, Persona 5 is, is an epic RPG. And the mm-hmm. Persona 5 Royal really builds upon that in the way that uh, Golden built upon Persona 4. Because there's so much more to do in Persona 5 Royal. I mean, I got to finish this game. And... I'm not even close because there's so many more characters to meet. A whole 
altered ending, which is good because the end game for the original game for original Persona 5 wasn't that great. And that was a complaint I heard a lot, and it is pretty valid. So they, they changed that up for the for the Persona 5 Royal. And uh, yeah, I finally got to seduce the hot doctor who was like, I think you're underage. And I felt really <laughs> skeevy, but at least I did it. Some weird relationships in that game, gotta say. Yeah, but that's a cute doctor. I like her a lot. Like the teacher that's coming in and cosplaying as a maid? Yeah, that was that's a little weird. I mean, in the context of the game, they I think they kind of talk about that a little bit. She is she's a bad teacher. Number one, she's very apathetic. You know, okay, do you know Miss Hoover from The Simpsons and how she is with her students? I do. She's kind oh, of like of that. Go home, children. You know that sort of thing. Yeah. So she's making ends meet as a with as a maid and. Uh, yeah, it is still very weird because even though they, okay, here's them having this this commentary about how this is kind of strange and why is a teacher having to work two jobs? Okay, but you still got to do your laundry. So, you know, <laughs> that's the problem. I, I also like that they expand the battle system in Persona 5 Royal. They do. They absolutely do. It's so much better. It's so much smoother. Uh, they added a new battle theme. Thank God. It's just a, a really good RPG, and if you're going to choose between Persona 5 and Persona 5 Royal, I would definitely, definitely say pick up Royal, like no hesitation. I like Persona 5's battle theme, though. It's not bad. Oh, it's, it's great. It's fantastic, but it's all it's the only battle theme they have. And how many fights do you fight in Persona 5? Many. Exactly. Many battles. Many, many, many battles. It never stops. So give me something else, please. Like It still has last surprise, don't get me wrong, but I think if you surprise an enemy you get the alternate theme if you get surprised you get last surprise which is ironic now i think about it there is in fact a lot to love about persona 5 i mean between the art obviously uh, the realization of the world the music the music is incredible the battle theme the battle theme despite being turn-based just has this rhythm and a flow to it that i find really enjoyable i do like that it tackles uh certain uh, social ills in Japanese culture and is like really straightforward about that, about these characters in many ways speaking truth to power. Um, and I enjoy any game that speaks truth to power. And I totally have not played Persona 5 Royal and I am still in the middle of Persona 5 and someday I'm going to play this freaking game, Nadia. But first I got to play Yakuza Like a Dragon and Cyberpunk, I swear to God. <laughs> Yeah, I actually think now I said earlier, I'm not sure if Persona 5 tackles the cops. And I'm like, oh, duh, of course it does. It's <laughs> the very first scene. You <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> very first scene you see is of a high school kid getting the crap beaten out of him by the cops for something he what's didn't the main, do. What's the backstory of the main character? <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry about that. Yeah, so it does tackle social ills. Maybe not with the with the, the precision that Yakuza Like a Dragon does, but again, I think... Persona 5 is maybe meant for a younger audience despite the M rating. Uh, so you see those problems through the perspective of a teenager. So it may, might seem a little more, a little softer than what you get in Yakuza Like a Dragon. Either way, I'm glad these games are, are speaking out to some degree, and I hope they increase their volume as they go on. And finally, Seth Palmer says for Persona 5 Royal, very charming cast with such an incredible story and just one of the best turn-based combat systems in a very long time immensely engaging even with 100 plus hours of content i loved my time with it so so much everything just came together in that game and then john roland says persona 5 royal it's an amazing new version of the game with a lot of new content that i feel got pretty overlooked because everyone in the game was playing final fantasy 7 remake instead oh Guilty. yeah 
No shade. It's like 120 hour game now after all, but I still think it didn't get the attention that it deserved and they're not wrong. Okay. And number five in our list of the five RPGs that we loved most in 2020. Nadia, I'm going to let you have this one. Paper Mario, the Origami King. Oh, Paper Mario. Now, you want to talk about a series with the most poisonous discourse on the internet. That comes somewhere near the top. And it's so funny because it's such a nice, charming little series about paper people and and fun little Mario things. And, uh, no, people get really angry about Paper Mario. And so that's why I'm glad to see that some of that anger has been dissipating because Origami King, even though it's still not as defined as Thousand Year Door was, like it doesn't have those that really charming character design and world design, it still stood out as its own game and it's proved that Mario can, Paper Mario can step out of the Thousand Years Door's shadow and give you a really fun game. It's hilarious. The writing's fantastic. Uh, The setting is kind of a more open world versus the previous game's chapters. And I really like that you had these open worlds that you could, you could explore in a Karibo shoe. Like that's, that's fantastic. So I I really enjoyed myself with Origami King. I'm really glad to see it got the recognition it deserves. Uh, the battle system's still not great. There's still a debate over why is Nintendo making us do these these battles when they obviously want a more action-oriented Paper Mario series. And if they do find a way to kind of, you know, modify that or, or transfer it or do something with that, make it more turn-based again, that'd be nice. But even with the, the wonky battle system... There was just so much to love about Paper Mario Origami King. At the last act, where you finally do team up with Bowser and his cronies, it's some of the funniest writing I've, I've seen in an RPG, and I, I really, really loved it. So, yeah, I uh, I give it a, a thumbs up. I think I gave it a 4 out of 5 on US Gamer. Surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, disappointingly, Paper Mario the Origami King, despite the fact that Nintendo releases were relatively few and far between, and this game came out in the summer. It felt like it just came and went, and nobody was paying attention to it anymore. Uh, it's, it's best-selling. Uh, it's definitely the best-selling Paper Mario game by far. So people were really paying well. Yeah. I mean, that's not surprising given that it came out on Nintendo Switch, right? Yeah, but no, there, there's definitely people who who were really kind of into the discourse, uh, at least from what I saw, and not just the people who are rabble, rabble, rabble. This isn't the Paper Mario I want, <laughs> which. I really do want to see uh, GameCube games come to the Switch with Thousand Year Door so people can make that judgment for themselves because, yes, it is an excellent RPG and I love it very, very much, but it still has a lot of flaws that people are kind of forgetting because they want to get angry at new Paper Mario. Maybe it's just that people are a little bit tired of the idea of Paper Mario but end up ignoring just all of the good qualities that a game like this can offer. But in any case, maybe a little unjustly overlooked as RPGs in 2020 go. Yeah, I think it was de- it was one of the standouts, and I'm glad to see, despite that, it did make a lot of lists of best of. It's definitely one of, on my best of list for the year. Okay, let's talk about a few honorable mentions really quickly, Nadia. I want to throw out Baldur's Gate 3 Early Access, which... Even though it's an early access and it's hardly not finished, I mean, there are weird placeholders over certain romantic scenes and different yes. characters hadn't been <laughs> introduced yet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it just seems really funny the way they uh, they kind of blanked out the romance scenes because they don't have that quite ready yet. So they just kind of put like a picture of a, a, a 
mind flare over any sex. That's really, really good way to kill your horny. And if you want to talk about it as a developer that has really hit its stride and in many ways is almost over subsuming CD Projekt as the world's most beloved RPG developer, I mean, look no further than Larian. And then Baldur's Gate 3, I mean, it seems awesome, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I was playing it. It's a big budget version of a 90s RPG, but it has so many smart ideas in so many ways and it's gorgeous and there's so much to do and so much to explore. This game seems absolutely humongous. It's ridiculous. So I'm very excited about it. Probably going to be one of the most successful RPGs of 2021, I should think. Yeah, it's definitely generating a a whole lot of discourse, even though it's in early access. So it's going to be pretty big when it comes out. Another honorable mention, Trails of Cold Steel 4, which put a bow on that particular series, finally coming out in English. And La La Land says, Trails of Cold Steel 4, I felt it pulled its punches slightly by giving everyone who did bad a supernatural excuse, (laughs) but I loved its utter commitment to properly paying off all three prior games in the series with frequent 20 plus minute cutscenes. Much love to the localization team too. Yes, that was a lot of text to localize. Uh, Good job, everybody. I have not finished Cold Steel 4 yet. I might actually wait until the Switch version comes out because it was one thing I learned with, with Cold Steel 3. This is a good game series for the Switch. You don't lose a whole lot in the way of graphical fidelity, and it's a really fantastic sort of game to just sit on your couch and play while something's going on in the background because there's just a lot of talking and a lot of exposition. This one was a port, but Persona 4 Golden came out on Steam this year, Nadia. That was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And at Atchelvania said, I had never played a Persona game before 4 Golden came out on Steam this year. So far, I've already sunk over 100 hours into it. Wow. It's not a perfect game but over the course of me playing it it has become one of my all-time favorites ultimately it is a bittersweet game especially at the end where you're racing the clock to spend time with the people you've come close to it reminded me of being young and how quickly time goes by and how little time we have to spend with those we love no wow uh, that was really nice that is nice thank you Atchelvania. yeah and i'm so glad that persona 4 golden is on steam now and has been rescued from vita and it seems to have been had a real impact on Alice. I think it's been really eye-opening for them to see like, oh my God, this is selling really well. Yeah. Maybe we should put more games on Steam. This is exciting. It definitely sounds like they've been converted to Steam. And I'm really happy about that because I think it means that a lot of their harder to access uh, catalog will soon wind up there. And I can finally play Persona 3. Persona 3. Persona 3. Let's do it. Yes. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And let's throw out a couple of overlooked RPGs really quickly. This is what I asked people to submit them. A tea tree says, Eichenfell. It's a cute, breezy, retro-style RPG with combat influenced by Mega Man Battle Network. Wow, I can hear Nadia's like little antenna going up. <laughs> That's great for playing in bite-sized sessions before bed. And How Tran said, I think Eichenfell could use more praise. Interesting battle system, accessibility options, gender-diverse cast, and great music, too. Mythbearer by uh, Patrick Dubuque says, I really enjoyed the lo-fi indie Mythbearer, which combines Zelda 1-style open-world exploration with an almost board game-level puzzle quality of planning orders of operations. Quanta wanted to highlight Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. While technically not released in 2020, I played Xenoblade Chronicles for the first time thanks to the Definitive Edition. Absolutely fantastic game, but enjoying the extra side story with the Definitive Edition as well. 
I had totally forgotten about Definitive Edition until people were like oh, rabbling a lot because it didn't get nominated for Best RPG. That's a that's a difficult nomination because it doesn't add a whole lot, but it is still a really excellent RPG, and I'm glad to see that people are being converted. Yes, to Xeno, to the Xenoblade series. Come, come, join us. Join us. Is Ryan time? B plus. Solid B RPG, I think. It's different, and I like the fact that it's different. I just love its setting. And I mean, when I was playing Definitive Edition, I'm like, oh, I want to play Xenoblade Chronicles 2 again. So I did that too at the same time. Wow, that's a lot of Xenoblade Chronicles. Did you finish it? Heck no, but gosh, I just it's one of those games that I remember vividly playing in the the, the, the season and then and all of that. I was playing it in, and uh, I, I just love Xenoblade Chronicles 2 so much. It has probably some of the most probably the most atmosphere of any RPG I've ever played. Oh, and you also said that you're playing Monster Sanctuary. Yes, and you know, it's funny. I don't know why I picked it up. I think it was on a whim. Maybe it was on sale. And it's a very fun little, not even a Pokemon clone. It plays very differently from Pokemon, but it is a battle monster sort of game where you go exploring. It combines Pokemon with turn-based RPGs with Metroidvania. So... That's an interesting combination to begin with. It has really, really charming sprite-based art, not only with the monsters, but also when you go into their profiles and you look at each one that you've captured, you get like a unique drawing of the monsters and it looks really good. And it's a little bit aimless, like there's not really a, a central thing that I care about beyond like some people saying, oh, there's strong monsters here and there, blah, 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 but... I'm just really enjoying going around and exploring the map and uh, seeing what there is. You'd probably like it because it's very systems-based. Oh, I mean, you said systems-based. Um, so now um, your antenna now, is. Now my antenna is going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I don't feel like it's gotten a whole lot of attention this year, maybe because, to be honest, the name's a bit generic. But I think it is certainly worth checking out if you just want a good uh, Pokemon-like experience that also combines JRPGs and Metroidvanias. It sounds like a weird mess of a combination, but it works somehow. Last one, and maybe even one that I overlooked a little bit because I played it and eventually got a little tired of it, but Wasteland 3, uh, Daniel Fuchs says, although it was buggy, buggy as heck on PS4, it was still a fantastic CRPG, only the last bit of the game felt a bit rushed, but an overall well-put-together RPG. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah, it was fine. It was fine. Uh, in a cool... XCOM meets uh, Fallout kind of way. So you, you have another cat box, back of the box quote. It was fine. <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> it's all right. All right, Nadia, we listed our five favorite RPGs. We talked about some honorable mentions and we talked about our overlooked RPGs. It's now time to share what our favorite RPG of the year was. Nadia, what is the best RPG of 2020 in your opinion? Um, we're, if we're not counting Hades... And I don't think we are. Um, I would say, even though I haven't really even finished it, it's like a dragon. I just feel like mm. it encapsulates what an RPG is. It really, really encapsulates the spirit of an RPG because it bases itself upon Dragon Quest, which says it all right there. And Ichiban wants to be that hero who saves everybody. And he's latched onto this, ident this idea of what a hero is because when you think about it, all he's had is this, this NES to entertain him while he was growing up in a, in a, in a soapland house so it's just a great character great social commentary and again how often do we get to play rpgs where the heroes are 40 year old burnouts like it just doesn't happen and it probably won't happen again for a long time rarely uh, yeah i think that 
the just the concept of it and the cast um really just barely nudges it above final fantasy 7 remake for the prize of best rpg of the year i, I think that final fantasy 7 remake will prove more impactful and just by looking at my mentions and seeing how many people ended up loving it um maybe speaks to that yes but Yakuza Like a Dragon was a real gem, I think. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely would count uh, 7 Remake as a, a second, no problem there, but uh, I just feel like something was really special about Like a Dragon that you're just not going to get anywhere else on, in any other game. Yeah, I've just enjoyed my time with Final with Yakuza Like a Dragon so much. I've put quite a few hours into it at this point, and, uh, you know, I just want to keep playing it more. Like, I'm ready to put aside Cyberpunk so that I can wrap it up. Yeah. It's really good, Nadia. It's really good. Yeah, and um, I'm glad that it's getting the recognition it deserves. Okay, there you have it. The 2020 RPG year in review. What do you think? What do you think was the best RPG of the year? What were some other overlooked RPGs that you would like to hear us talking about? No, we're not going to be talking about Genshin Impact or AC Valhalla. (laughs) Sorry, everybody. (laughs) Sorry, no. um, no, No hate genuinely like those games are fine but i think that there are better rpgs out there like the ones that we just listed yeah there's a lot of rpgs to go over so we can't go over all of them Hmm. sorry but yeah if you want to talk about those games you should send us a note cat.bailey at usgamer.net or send me a dm on twitter at the underscore kappa okay let's continue on to the track of the week Okay, it's time for the track of the week, the segment in which we take a song from an RPG that we are enjoying and talk about it because music is so important for understanding the genre that we love. This week, we have a song from Final Fantasy VII. Surprise, surprise, it's because I let Nadia choose it. (laughs) See if you recognize this one. Yes, this week's song is Judgment Day from Final Fantasy VII. And this is what Nadia had to say in the notes. Hooray! We're finally getting more Final Fantasy VII music in Smash. Thanks to Sephiroth's arrival, boo, we're not getting Judgment Day. The song that plays as Cloud and his friends descend into the Northern Crater to fight Sephiroth for the last time. Yet, the Northern Crater is Sephiroth's Smash stage. We're getting Eris theme, though? We're really going to fight to Eris theme? The heck? I don't get it. No, I, I, I don't get it. Uh, Judgment Day is a very... It's one of my favorite songs, uh, one of my favorite Final Dungeon songs, really. Uh, it has a very heavy, intense, driving theme to it. It would be absolutely perfect for Smash. Uh, but, and uh, like I said, it is part of the Northern Crater, which is Sephiroth's stage, to the point that when I saw that we were getting Northern Crater as a stage and Sephiroth's reveal, I said, oh, crap, that, we're going to get Judgment Day. That's going to be great. Um, but we are not getting Judgment Day. We're getting a whole bunch of other songs, which is fine. Like, one of them's Eris' theme, though. How do you fight to Eris' theme? I don't get it. And uh, we are getting Cosmo Canyon, though, and that almost makes up for it, because Cosmo Canyon is one of my favorite uh, Final Fantasy VII songs as well. You said that it's one of your favorite Final Fantasy Dungeon boss themes. It has a hev- relentless, heavy beat to it that really drives home the urgency of the upcoming battle. Yes, I think it's a great song. I think it would be perfect for Smash, like I said. Uh, but Sakurai kind of went into the rights problems uh, that he deals with in uh, his presentation for Sephiroth. So I'm sure they did the best they could. And I think Square is really, really, really possessive of their soundtracks to a ridiculous degree. 
<laughs> to say the least. Yeah. I I don't know. Um I don't know that I love this song very much because I find the the heavy beat at the beginning a little bit droning. Oh, I love uh, it. As it were. That's the best part. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When I played Final Fantasy 15, you know, he could have the 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 regalia have on, on the radio. I always had Judgment Day or Genova on there. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, there you go. I always played the music from, I think, Final Fantasy IX's Overworld theme. That's, that's, I was really, I was a big fan of that that's one. That's a good driving song. Hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a remix of Melodies of Life, but I was okay with that. And it's just nice to be playing on the road, I think. I think that, so. That was the best part of Final Fantasy XV, I think, was just being able to play the Final Fantasy music while you were driving around. Yeah, one of my favorite comments on Twitter was something like, uh, I wish I could say that in real life I've never driven up to a gas station blasting to Nova, but I'd be lying. Okay, that is the track of the week. If you have a track that you would like to submit, drop us a line and you may have it included in the next episode. Okay, that is the end of our episode. If you enjoyed the episode, do us a favor, leave us a review. It helps the podcast. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford and you can follow me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash TV. We'll be back for one last episode on US Gamer to say goodbye to the site that has been the home of Acts of the Blood God for the past six years. And Eric and well, Matt will be there and we'll be talking about the whole year in video games. And it'll be really nice, Nadia. It will be. Um, it's going to be sad, but it'll be nice. It will be pretty sad. But okay. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week, and until then, for Naughty Myself, happy adventures.